Hello, and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. As we pick back up our look at Ezekiel 12 to 14, we'll hear some voices that try to get our attention by shouting the loudest, others that try to wiggle in with a whisper, but we'll let the prophet show us how to heed the voice of God in a sea of noise. The other week as I was uh, prepping a sermon, I ventured into my inner geekiness and pulled out an example from a Justice League Unlimited episode, which I used to watch growing up. So I think if I uh, told a story about Superman uh, to a small town, (laughs) the cat is out of the bag that I'm a nerd. I'm not very athletic, except for maybe racquetball. I'm not very up-to-date on Instagram or fashion and uh, I was wearing a Batman t-shirt writing this. So I'm just going to embrace it, uh, run with it, and pull yet another story from that Justice League show for today while I'm at it. So there's a Justice League episode called Tabula Rasa, where Lex Luthor gets a hold of this android. All right, not a smartphone, okay? Robot. This is 2003. This android called Amazo is basically like an evolving robot that observes and adapts and duplicates superpowers. But this android is basically like Frankenstein's monster. He's not a killing machine, he's a blank slate, hence Tabula Rasa. He starts out innocent, and Lex Luthor cons him into treating him like a father figure and fighting the Justice League for him. So Amazo, the robot, is evolving and evolving and gaining all these, these superpowers and almost indiscriminately, like getting more and more of whatever powers are thrown at him, just absorbing them and and dishing them back. Cool as it is, though, he doesn't really know what he's doing. He's just using all those new powers to fight the superheroes because Daddy Luther told him to. All right, so that's one part of the episode. And then there's a side story going on the whole time following Martian Manhunter, who, by the way, is very cool. A little OP like Superman, but more interesting, in my humble opinion. So anyway, Martian Manhunter reads minds, among other things, and he's trying to find Lex Luthor for the Justice League. So he he expands the radius of his mind reading to a massive scale. But by doing that, he gets overwhelmed by everyone's thoughts from the city he's in, the human selfishness, the evil, the hypocrisy. Hearing so many thoughts at once overwhelms him to the point of wondering, why am I even helping this people? And he runs off <laughs> into the forest. I'm not going to spoil how it all ends. I'm sure you're going to want to watch it later. Uh, but I think we can really feel similar today, getting bombarded with messages and claims about what matters in life, where we're headed in life, how we get there. Now, on the one hand, like that android, Amazo, we just absorb and dish out everything we get. We're just echoing back any message that comes our way that seems useful or interesting. But we don't really know what we're doing with it. We're just recycling all these incoming messages and owning them, but we're not thinking through in the slightest who we're really hurting or helping by doing that, including hurting ourselves. Now, on the other hand, like Martian Manhunter, when we're bombarded with so many messages, it's overwhelming. It makes us just want to shut down. Why am I even thinking about this larger-than-life stuff to begin with? I'd rather just mute it all and relax. 
But to really make it through life without giving in and parroting every agenda that's thrown at us or just giving up on the important things altogether, we need some way of sifting through the sounds. We need to know how to heed the voice of God in a sea of noise. We need to know what we're in danger of believing when it comes to mixed messages, how it is they really drown out God's word and how to weed out the lies that we've come to believe for ourselves without knowing it. That's what Ezekiel 12 to 14.11 really helps us with. So we started our discussion of these chapters last week where we talked about this new section in the book of Ezekiel, what it's doing as a whole, what these chapters in particular help us see. God's warning and perspective stays the same even after the glory of God leaves the temple in a vision. That somber judgment hasn't changed from the first part of the book. But we're starting to see different angles now on on the barriers that people have put up to hearing that message. God systematically breaks down the defenses that the people put up, whether it's by analyzing and repurposing popular sayings or going after the false advertisers directly. So last week, one of the, the big insights that we landed on, a real light bulb moment, was discovering that the sea of noise drowns out the voice of God, not by overtaking it, but by undermining it. We're always so afraid of the loud, obnoxious voice that screams, the Bible's a lie. But we forget the equally damning swarm of cacophonous sounds that makes everything seem so small and consequenceless. So we checked out chapter 12 through half of chapter 13. We saw two common lies, two dangerous advertisements to socially acceptable sound bites that, that cover up the word of God. One was the jingle that says, God's word is all bark and no bite. And the other one said, we can take security and more positive messages when we don't like God's message. But there's two more subliminal messages we need to sift through and weed out in the rest of chapter 13 and the first part of 14. So let's dive into chapter 13 together, starting in verse 17. I've asked Joe Straw over in Chicago to do the readings for us today. This is Ezekiel 13.17 to 14.11 in the NASB translation. Now you, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who are prophesying from their own inspiration. Prophesy against them and say, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the women who who sew magic bands on all wrists and make veils for the heads of persons of every stature to hunt down lives. Will you hunt down the lives of my people, but preserve the lives of others for yourselves? For handfuls of barley and fragments of bread, you have profaned me to my people to put to death some who should not die and to keep others alive who should not live by your lying to my people who listens to lies. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against your magic bands by which you hunt lives there as birds, and I will tear them from your arms, and I will let them go. Even those lives whom you hunt as birds, I will also tear off your veils and deliver my people from your hands, and they will no longer be in your hands to be hunted, and you will know that I am the Lord." Because you disheartened the righteous with falsehood when I did not cause him grief, but have encouraged the wicked not to turn from his wicked way and preserve his life, 
Therefore, you women will no longer see false visions or practice divination, and I will deliver my people out of your hand. Thus, you will know that I am the Lord. All right, now you're probably thinking after hearing that, there's some confusing and foreign stuff in here, and I don't really totally understand it. And you know, that's okay. Part of why we're here on The Rebind is to help with that, to clear up some confusion so we can engage with what's being said here uh, more faithfully. So let's work through this for a minute. The passage starts out saying, As for you, puny human, prophesy against these women. And before we get to these particular women, uh, think about the way that this starts. As for you. Okay, we just finished talking about these pseudo-prophets who follow their hearts, even though their hearts are really just making up whatever they want. As for you, Ezekiel, call out the lie. Now, what I'm not saying here is go be like Ezekiel and rage comment on social media telling everyone what you disagree with. What I'm trying to draw attention to was how different God's actual prophet, his particular spokesman was from all the false advertisers that we've been talking about. If the noises we hear all the time are, are nearsighted, self-serving, and blindly positive, then the true message of God is totally different than that. Here's what all the people who want your job are saying, Ezekiel, and here's what your job really is. As for you, messenger, look beyond the surface. Point out who really suffers from these lies. Speak the truth I give you, and don't sugarcoat it, twist it, or dumb it down. Okay, so... Just one detail I don't want us to miss here. Remember how the overwhelmed prophet is personally involved in this. Think through the, the backstory to these indictments that we're reading about. Think about the frustration, the, the vindication, the strength and encouragement that Ezekiel needed and, and, and the refocus that God embeds here, even in the probing judgments. But now for, for the women that are being called out here. What does it mean that they made wristbands and headbands for people? Does this mean we should boycott Etsy as satanic? <laughs> well, the tools of their trade looked more like voodoo dolls and Ouija boards than mere clothing accessories, actually. The details on this are debated, but the gist is pretty clear. These women, who God isn't even willing to call false prophetesses because they're so far off of what a prophet should be, these, these posers are essentially succumbing to their new Babylonian influences and using magic to manipulate people. Now, if I say magic and you think Frozen 2 or role-playing games, we're getting the wrong vibe here. By magic, I mean like incantations, practicing witches, dragging the Lord down into their heinous underworld power plays as they pull the strings on people's destinies. So this is serious stuff. And yet they're doing it all to make a pretty penny. They're, they're literally feeding off of the confusion and corruption that they cause. Now, I'm not really sure if God condemns these occultists for putting innocent people to death because they curse them with black magic, basically like sentencing them to die, even though they, they don't deserve to. Or somehow in this dark, demonic, messed up dive into the magical arts, they're actually killing people while everyone drinks the Kool-Aid. But regardless, let's not miss the worst for the trees here. The point is, they're getting everything backwards. And it's wearing off on the bystanders and victims and customers. They call good what God calls evil. And they call evil what God calls good. 
trying to drag God down into the mess and harness his power too. I mean, that's probably why he says he's being profaned among his people. They condemn the righteous to a wicked death and endorse the lives of the Alcatraz prisoners. Now, think about this. Why would everyone drink that Kool-Aid? Why buy into the black magic? Why be trapped like this? What's the subliminal message here? What's the danger we relate to, even beyond the, the ancient and foreign practices? Well, these are the paid professionals. These are the modern, trending, powerful influencers adopting the, the popular practices of their day. Even we are tempted to believe what anyone says about right and wrong must be right, especially if it's said with such confidence. The indictment of God is that these women have discouraged the righteous with lies, even though I haven't discouraged them, and encouraged the wicked to keep it up, even though I've encouraged them to turn and live. What's especially striking about this passage is the way that God depicts these occultist power grabbers. He talks to them like they're violent oppressors that he's come to deliver his people from. He says they entrap people with their magic bands like hunted birds, but that he will rescue them from their power. Forget the boycotting. The Lord is stepping in to drain the Kool-Aid, stop the magic tear off the magic bands, rescue his people from their traps. And despite how dark all this is, and, and despite the somber judgments the Lord's giving here, it's strangely comforting and refreshing to see the concern that he shows for his people. Despite the general mass of people being called out for the ways they've absorbed and rehearsed the lies of false advertisers and what we saw last week, here we see there's a sense in which they're also victims. They're caught and ensnared, canceled or memorialized at the whim of these power-hungry enchantresses. To call good evil and evil good, to, to cancel the righteous for their integrity and memorialize the wicked for their evil is not just an interesting political debate or a, a fascinating conflict of ideas. It hurts people. It kills people. And we don't even realize what we're doing, even while the Lex Luthers pull the strings. This may not look like voodoo in our cultures, but we're still tempted to think that what anyone says about right and wrong must be right, especially if it's said with such confidence. And that's still just as serious, just as important to God, just as harmful for us, just as subtle and enticing, even though we look back and scoff and say, oh, how primitive. We mentioned how that uh, As For You intro points us back to the life of Ezekiel and the role that the prophet was supposed to play and the job that God gave him. And all of that is held up like a massive foil to all the corruptions and false advertisement in these chapters. But notice the specific language used in verse 22. These women have, quote, encouraged the wicked person not to turn from their evil conduct and preserve their life. If you can remember way back to the beginning of Ezekiel in chapter 3, God talks like this using 
the metaphor of a watchman to show how important and consequential it is that Ezekiel speak the truth, that Ezekiel deliver God's message. Human, it says back there, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you must give them a warning from me. If you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wicked deed, he will die for his iniquity, but you will have saved your own life. However, if you warn the righteous person not to sin and he does not sin, he will certainly live because he was warned and, and, and you will have saved your own life. All right, so that was chapter three. And here, God recycles that vocab and style and calling out these occultists to show how backwards they've got it. They have encouraged the wicked person not to turn from their evil conduct and preserve their life. So they not only neglect speaking the truth, they're evangelists for the lie. Ezekiel is is motivated, or at the very least should be motivated, by genuine welfare for his people. Even when it hurts, even when they hate him, the goal is for his friends and fellow exiles to turn from death and experience life. But the false advertisers have backwards motives even when it's easy, enticing, even when the people love them, their goal is to sap the people dry for what they can give, even if it means sending them smiling into the underworld. If we can see that contrast, if we can feel that danger, I think we'll see the weight of the Christian message and how much of an impact it makes on what's good for us and what really hurts. The truth that God reveals is is not one more magical omen to add to the manipulative tool belt. It's the sifting voice of God that pierces through the noise and sets us free from the snares of would-be saviors. All right, I'm harping on this one a lot, but let's keep going into chapter 14. There's another subliminal message to watch out for. Then some elders of Israel came to me and sat down before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? Therefore, speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, Any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet. I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols in order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through all their idols. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the immigrants who stay in Israel, who separates himself from me, sets up his idols in his heart, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet to inquire of me for himself, I, the Lord, will be brought to answer him in my own person." I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb, and I will cut him off from my people, so you will know that I am the Lord. But if the prophet is prevailed upon to speak a word, it is I, the Lord, who have prevailed upon that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from my people Israel. 
they will bear the punishment of their iniquity. As the iniquity of the inquirer is, so the iniquity of the prophet will be, in order that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me and no longer defile themselves with all their transgressions. Thus they will be my people, and I shall be their God, declares the Lord God. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so this time around, the elders or leading men from the exile community are called out for their, their duplicity, their mindset that says, I'll just add the Lord to my personal pantheon of gods. Maybe he can help me. Well, in their minds, it's totally normal to go worship an idol and then walk down to church and pray for Nana's cancer. God challenges them. Do you really think I'm going to come negotiate with you? You completely disregard me and what I've told you, and yet you come by every once in a while to rub the genie lamp and get some wishes? If I answer you, it will be an answer to the idols you've set up to break off from me, even if you think you can just come near anytime you want. So again, we see in verse 5 another glimpse into the heart of God's concern for his people in the middle of all this. Even The judgments have the goal of capturing the hearts of his people who are estranged from him. Now, that might not be as romantic and desperate as it sounds to us today. Maybe we should translate in verse 5 something more like he wants to, to seize the whole house of Israel that's avoiding him. But at the very least, we've got to say this shows us how God is mercifully trying to engage with his wayward people and break down their barriers even in the shocking poking and prodding. We see something similar towards the end in verse 11. The the end goal here is that they won't keep running in the wrong direction, but that they may be my people and I their God. Yet what we see in the rest of this passage is a little puzzling. Because on the one hand, it sounds like God is saying, if a smorgasborder comes to a prophet trying to leave a voicemail for me and get a reply, I'm going to reply with a scathing judgment. But on the other hand, it sounds like he's saying, I'll actually make a fake prophet tell you a lie and judge you that way. So which is it? What determines the way God responds and and don't they sound kind of opposite to each other? How do we understand that tension? Well, there's two ways of understanding these two kinds of divine actions. I mean, one way of looking at this would be to say, you know, an elder or a leader comes to a prophet, whoever that prophet may be, and one of two things happens. God either speaks through the prophet, presumably a more faithful prophet like Ezekiel, and issues a direct judgment that the prophet delivers. Or, on the other hand, God may deceive that prophet, presumably a false prophet, and they are both made to reap what they sow and living a lie and being destroyed by it. So that's one way of looking at this. It's the same situation, but God is just responding in two totally different ways. But another way of looking at this would be the other way around. Not one situation with two potential outcomes, but two different situations addressed, or at least two different angles on how God is handling the co-mingling of an insincere seeker and insincere prophet. Let me explain what I mean a little bit. Let's look at verse four again. Uh, It says, when anyone from the house of Israel erects an idol in his heart and sets the obstacle leading to his iniquity before his face and then consults a prophet, 
I, the Lord, and determined to answer him personally according to the enormity of his idolatry. Now, personally here could mean in spite of the prophet instead of through the prophet. What the Lord could be saying here is, I will bypass this phony prophet and deliver my judgment against you directly. And part of how I'll do that is by making each of you live with the destructive lies you're choosing over me. So this seems to make better sense of these 11 verses, especially the way that it ends. God judges both the prophet and the elder that seeks the prophet because the whole exchange from both parties is insincere, manipulative. It's avoiding the sole focus on God that he confronts them with. I will stretch out my hand against them, it says. They will bear their punishment. However, that manifested, it's clear that God was going to intervene to show his disapproval. So I hope I'm not getting overly technical here. I'm just trying to clear up any confusion we may have about how all these verses are fitting together. It's not an arbitrary two-faced response where God plays the devil. It's an intentional, consistent overruling where God forces the consequences of the half-truths and stops the cycle with a direct intervention. In the middle of all that, though, we see another one of those dangerous subliminal messages, right? We can take any message to heart so long as we also take God's message to heart. We think that, but we don't realize how that personal pantheon approach undercuts God's message in the first place. If we come to the Lord with other messages, other idols already captivating us, then just popping in for a couple genie wishes is going to go way differently than we think it is. I'm not saying we got to clean up our act to get to God, especially if we're, we're turning from the act and, and banking on God's grace. But this is definitely saying God's no one's fool. God is nobody's fool. If we're buying into the lies of the personal pantheon, we're, we're not only unwittingly distancing ourselves from the one we're seeking, but we're also judged through the very openness that keeps us from him. Very meta stuff, very mind-boggling, but don't let the analytical philosophics here blunt the sharp edge. As we close this out, let's, let's just rehash those four false advertisements that we saw crop up in these chapters. Think about how often we're tempted to buy into these same subtle lies. God's word is all bark, no bite. Positivity always wins, so the most comforting message must be the right one. Right and wrong is what people say it is, especially if they're loud about it. So long as we add Christian stuff into the mix, we can add any other ingredient we want. What Ezekiel so powerfully shows us is that the sea of noise drowns out the voice of God, not by overtaking it, but by undermining it. Well, we may get so fixated on the tip of the iceberg and lazily dismiss what we think of as the obvious challenges to our faith, we may need to take a look under the surface. If there was anyone who was a foil for the fools here, even more than Ezekiel, it was the long-awaited prophet, Jesus Christ. If there was anyone who told us the hard-but-needed message, it was Jesus. If there was anyone who looked the paid professionals square in the face and said, you're getting right and wrong all wrong. 
it was the Messiah that made morality. If there was anyone who called out the instability of a mixed up faith, it was the one who called us to build on the solid rock. If there's anyone who bit where the word barked and showed us the consequentialness of scripture, it was the one who said, I haven't come to abolish the law, but fulfill it. Not one jot or tittle will pass away. So if you think this is just some OT harshness here, think again. What we see by taking all of scripture seriously is the subtle subliminal messages that bombard us every day. These below the surface defenses that God wants to weed out And this beautiful, punctuating, piercing voice of God, voiced most clearly by the Savior that we sing about. So in that same spirit, I want to close this out by praying the words of the song, Speak, O Lord, by Stuart Townend and the Gettys. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth Plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Cause our faith to rise, cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority, words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. Amen. The Rebind is made possible by the help of Andrew Horning over at Andrew Horning Sound, who handles the audio mastering and music for the podcast along with the art contributed by graphic designer Adam Anderson and the continued support of listeners like you. If you benefited from this podcast, uh, it'd be a huge help if you can go ahead and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, like us on social media, and spread the word. We'll see you guys next time.